Gonna get going right away here. Couple, uh, just a, little, a few housekeeping details um, in terms of the. Uh, before we jump right in, for those of you who are interested, um, we're, uh, we can jump to the next one, Kathy. I think the uh, first one has got a Lent, a Lent guide in there, a little number. Um, for those who are interested, if, uh, if, if uh, between now and Easter, if you want a, a, something for a devotional, there's all sorts of resources out there on Lent. There's this one right here called the Lent Project that's put up by Ola. Actually, if you type in Google the Lent Project and by Ola, it'll take you there. And um, I put the address there as well. It's kind of a cool one because you, can, you click on a little button and it plays a, some music while you're doing your, your old devotional. There's some artwork that goes with it. And then there's basically some scriptures and some prayers. So if, you, if and really well done. So if you just want to have a special time of focus, they've done a good job on that. That's one resource that you can go to. Um, on the back of your bulletin, I just want to talk about these before we jump into our subject as we're moving through this. Uh, series on sexuality. I've listed some resources. I just want to add a couple that, um, I mean, I could add a million, but there's um, a couple on here. So up on the screen, um, there's a couple that are not on here. Um, one's called Welcoming But Not Affirming by Stan Grentz. Actually, I had him as a professor up at Regent College. Um, he died shortly ago. Um, really well done book that really covers the whole gamut of the issues with uh, homosexuality done in a really just a really good way, yet very, very thorough. So that's probably, I would suggest, if you want something that just kind of covers everything and does it really well, um, I would, that would be a good one to go to. Um, you can leave that up, uh, Kathy. There's some here on the back. Um, I just want to mention a couple. There's um, the book by, uh, it's called The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics by Robert Gagan, or Gagan, whatever it is. Um, if you re- it's probably the, the best, most thorough text on the, scripture passages. So if you're looking for something that's going to cover every possible thought about that and do it thoroughly, that would be the book to read. But I tell you, it's like 600 pages long. So it's like a textbook. So if you're one, if you know, there's a few of you here who would just love that. So go ahead and get it. Have fun on it. But he also has a website, robgagnon.net, R-O-B-G-A-G-N-O-N.net. And they've actually a bunch of videos of him talking. So if you're like, oh, I, I wouldn't mind a 20-minute video. It beats 50, 100, 200, 300 pages. Th- go there. You may agree or disagree with him, but he covers a bunch of stuff. Primarily on this, the scriptural text is where he primarily um, deals with. Um, the book on the back here called Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, as well as the, uh, the um, website at the end is Indelible Happenings. Um, that's a, an actually a PDF file by a guy named Lawrence Koo, who is part of the Navigators. Um, those two books are basically reflections of a personal experience. Um, both are, both are, are men that, um, that struggled in the areas of homosexuality, and they kind of write about their experience and the things that they pulled out of that. So those are both that kind of writing. They're their they're stories. Um, the, uh, I put the website for the last one there. I didn't print it up because it was too long. I would have spent too much money printing stuff, so... You can go to there, those two there. Um, I will make a mention, uh, Love is an Orientation by Andrew Marin. Um, a little controversial, but um, if you're looking for being challenged about, and we're going to talk about tonight, about sacrificially loving people and figuring out how do I step into people's lives 
in particular in this area, it's very hard for Christians to step in because everything's so polarized. Um, I would suggest that you read him. You may disagree with stuff. He, he's not going to make it very clear where he stands on the issue. Um, he and his wife purposely moved into an um, almost exclusively gay neighborhood in Chicago, have lived there for the past 12 years just to make relationships with people um, with ultimately to be able to bring the life-giving gospel to people. And so he shares how they have gone about and done that. Interesting, Robert Gagnon has strong, critical things to say about this guy um, because on the Christian side, they say, well, he's not being straight enough forward about where he stands. Um, and then on their side, he gets it from the, uh, the gay community, says that he's not really truthful because he's really Christian in disguise, but he isn't. He's, just, he's very passionate about wanting to build bridges because there are so few of them. And so if you want to be challenged on area, put it up there. I put all sorts of stuff. You may disagree or, dis- agree or disagree with the things I've got here. Most books are a mixed bag, which as most books are, they're to challenge our thinking and to help us to think through and talk through well. So um, if you do pick up one of these and said you're going to read it, I would suggest that you read it with somebody else and talk about it. So it's the best way to do it. That's, reading is a great thing. Reading and conversation is all that much better. So that's, those are some uh, uh, resources for you. You can take a look at those and um, do with those that you want. So let me pray, and then we will um, walk right into this. Father, as we've already prayed, that we would um, not just be open, that we would be hour by hour and moment by moment be transformed people. And um, even as we work through a subject matter to some degree tonight, um, you've always got something more for us, um, and it's about changing us and shaping us, because then you can use us in this world to make a difference. So do that in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So why this topic? We're on the biblical, we're on the sexuality series, um, and so we're on the subject of homosexuality tonight. Um, If you've heard of Jason Collins, um, he's a a NBA basketball player last April. He was on the front cover of, um, and I know this stuff because my son is into sports, so he just informs me of everything. he was on the front cover of Sports Illustrated last April because he came out as, a, uh, as being gay and was in the NBA. He was just released from a team at that time. Um, so he was on the, he basically tells his story in this uh, Sports Illustrated. It actually references his Christian upbringing numerous times in the story. Um, just this past week, he was signed on to a 10-day contract with the Brooklyn Nets um, and played basketball this week. Um, he came out on the court and... Um, the uh, home crowd stood up and they gave him a standing ovation, not because he was a good player, he hadn't even played yet, uh, this, but they stood up because of him having come out and gave him this incredible standing ovation. So that, um, my son had seen it on ESPN and, and watched it, and um, we were sitting around the dinner table and he said, so um, would, it, would it be okay if we had, would we have stood up and clapped for him? Would we have been part of the standing ovation for him coming out? Which is a good question, isn't it? Um, we could throw it out here and see what everybody thinks, and we might have a diversity of thoughts. Um, not unlike the question of, you have friends that are gay and they're going to get married, and they invite you to the wedding. What are you going to do? Um, how do you walk through that? And those are good questions, and they're hard, hard questions. Um, I won't tell you what we said, um, but it made for a great conversation. I thought, um, you know, it's, it is right in front of us. It's always been around. I mean, the, the, the subject has always been part of, part of Scripture, but we talk about it now because... Um, it is it's so much a part of everything that we're doing in conversations. You, you hardly go through a day when there's not a conversation. And the questions about it are so difficult sometimes um, because we want to be faithful people. We want to be godly people. And so the questions come up, and we need to address them 
and walk through them. So um, we're in a rapidly changing culture. It's hard to even stay current. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll mention this later, but I'm going to get the terminology all wrong. I'm not even going to worry about it because it actually changes and different people have different ideas about what the terms mean. So it becomes impossible to even stay with it. Our events, media, the legislature, um, even just what the last week or so with this, this potential law that, um, that was going to the legislature created, I'm sure, wherever you were, a fair amount of discussion. Um, gay marriage and homosexual relationships are, I would, I'm guessing, are likely to be seen as clearly normative across the board um, in our culture and even our churches within a couple of years. Um, so we are in a rapidly changed place. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've seen a, an issue like this, um, a culture change so quickly in its response to something as, I've, as we've seen with this particular one. It's been so, much, so rapid. So there's lots of reasons to talk about it. There's a cultural shift. Um, churches are changing positions, and it's not just the churches that we would consider on the outside somewhere. Um, evangelical churches are changing positions. There are some significant, very well-known evangelical leaders who have recently changed their position on this issue, and so that's creating more discussion. Um, I know that in our midst here, um, like us, we are having conversations at the dinner table. Um, questions are coming up. Um, we have family members who are struggling with the issue, and we're trying to figure out how to, how to relate to them and connect with them. Um, or family members that are gay, and so it becomes part of our, our very culture and our talk. Um, and then lastly, we're talking about because the church um, traditionally has handled the entire thing horribly across the board. Um, and struggles you might, it has not been handled well. Um, so we have um, either we acquiesce to it um, or wholeheartedly just embrace it and celebrate it, which churches do. Um, we ignore it, right? And that's always a good one. Christians are good at that. Let's just ignore it and just pretend it goes away and not really enter into it. Um, or very commonly, just be very antagonistic in the midst of the, the, the discussion. And so churches are, are that way. And even in working on this and going to different churches and listening to what they say, I'm like, I've been amazed at the differences of approaches that churches take to it. And some of it has just been offensive um, in terms of not necessarily maybe their conclusions, but the manner in which they do things. And so the churches traditionally, we have not done it well. So that's how we're talking about it. Um, some preliminary statements. My original preliminary statements was 10 pages long. It's, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, a few things. Number one, I just want this so we know where we're going this morning or this evening. Um, my audience is, I'm assuming, our church. This is for the vineyard. Um, for believers who have already, we've already embraced the authority of the word, and that's who I'm speaking to um, tonight. Um, this, like anything, you know, Sunday, Saturday evening, or Sunday morning is like, I've talked about this, is like this much of our Christian life. And it's like this much of, it should be, of our instruction as believers. And so what we say here today is such a small piece of the bigger picture. Um, and so I hope that God moves us towards engaging with each other. And if we don't engage, if, if we come and we listen and we don't engage about the things outside of here and work and study on our own, um, we're going to be anemic in our faith. It's just, it's just what happens. So um, you're going to actually get very little on this tonight, I'm just telling you. Um, make it a point of discussion. S search it out. Read the books. Talk about it together. It's got, we've got to be working on this outside of this place. So um, this is just a very small piece of it. Um, as far as terminology, I'm just asking for grace here. 
Uh, mostly when I speak about things, I'm going to be speaking about those who are actively um, participating in a homosexual relationship. But even the terminology today, there's actually a really good article um, that talks about same-sex attraction, homosexuality, and using the term gay and how they're different from each other. Um, but even those different groups view the words differently, and so it becomes very difficult, and I will, I will get it all messed up, so just give me some grace and don't worry about it, and I think we all understand what we're talking about. In terms of same-sex attraction, others being tempted by homosexual desires, I'm not going to spend much time on that, but I just want us to understand that the fall created all sorts of things, didn't it? Um, sin entered in the world, and we were all touched by it. And um, it's, the scriptures make it very clear, temptation is a result of the fall, but temptation itself is not sin. Um, and it's what we do with it, and we all have temptation. Um, and there's not one that's worse than another. It's just temptation is temptation is what we do with it. And so um, this is so we understand that as we move forward. Um, as a beginning here on this subject, um, we're not going to be going very much in depth, even on the scripture passage, which we're going to spend about a third of our time on. Um, you'll have lots of questions about that, and we can do that. Um, as such, uh, you could be disappointed on several fronts. I, I've been thinking about this. I'm going to think, think that some people, even discussing this with people, will feel I haven't drawn enough lines on some things, didn't make them quite dark enough. Um, others of you will feel like I made it way too strong, um, and it will be on their side. Um, because we're a diverse church, and that's good. Um, some will fail, think I'm failing to emphasize what we ought to really be paying attention to um, in, in general. Um, we could talk about legislative issues, health issues, initiating conversations with people with, I think, actually a couple months down the road, we'll probably, I'm guessing, we'll probably take a week and actually talk about how do we build bridges. Because that's, we're not going to talk about it tonight, but I think it's one of the ones that comes up when I'm speaking with people the most here at church. Um, homosexual temptation, we could talk about, we could debate arguments. Um, it's a broad and complex issue, but be assured that God is not perplexed by this. Um, God is not confused, and God is not wringing his hands over the things in our world, whether this issue or anything else, although we may. Um, and it's important for us to understand that. Um, I just sensed uh, this week that um, I'm hugely inadequate to this task. I'm very limited in my perspective, um, and there's so much, there's so many things to look at, and um, my knowledge is weak about it. Um, but I believe um, the Lord has given me something for us tonight, and um, it's not what I expected in this. So um, I, mean, I can tell you, I've read well over 2,000 pages of material um, on this, and we're going to get about a page of it tonight. Um, and we will hit one area, but there's a whole bunch of areas we are not going to talk about tonight. Um, not that they're not important, not that we shouldn't be discussing them. And so you may feel disappointed here, going, gosh, we didn't really talk about this issue very much. Um, but I'll just tell you, I absolutely feel um, convicted that the Lord has a message for us tonight. And um, the, my biggest struggle yesterday was thinking, Everybody's going to be disappointed and thinking we didn't go the right direction with this. And I felt a temptation to cast it aside and just go back to all these details. And God was saying, don't do that. Just don't do it because God's got something for us that comes before all these other things. So we are going to deal with the issue because we're going to deal with the scripture part. But there's more to it for us. And I really believe God has something for us. And for us to say, okay, well, what is it that you want us to see? 
and what do you want to do um, in our lives here tonight? Um, so um, he has some work to do in me first, and he has some work to do in us as well. So they said we may pick up some other parts later um, down the road here, but for today, I'm just asking that you be ready to hear and to offer your heart up to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit um, so that we could be more like the Creator. We have three key words that will give us our outline for where we're going tonight. Truth and brokenness and love. Those are our three key words. Truth and brokenness um, and love. So we'll start out with the truth, which is probably where everybody expected us to go tonight anyways, and we need to do this. The question always comes up because of everything changing, and ever since we started talking about we're going to have this thing in November, and I kept kind of being hedgy about it, and then I kept putting it off, and people started thinking, well, I think people are wondering, what's he going to say? Is he going to say something that's going to, like, shock us all, like the vineyard is a different place than I thought it was? Where are they at, you know? So the, the question is, where does the vineyard stand on the issue of homosexuality? So I want to answer that in terms of what, what God's word has to say so you understand where we are at as a church and, and how we got there and why we're there. Um, I don't believe that truth has changed or that we've had it wrong all along. It's interesting that the proliferation of content in our culture, particularly with the Internet, um, is good and bad, but there is so much out there that is um, so poorly done sometimes on both sides of the issue that it creates incredible confusion, particularly in the Christian community. Um, you read things go, oh, I, I didn't know this, and it contradicts what you've gone, and it makes total sense, but um, you start digging down and you find out it's not quite so clear, um, or it's, it's not quite how it sounds. So there's a great deal of confusion. I know that there's a lot of people here at this church who are kind of struggling with it, wondering, there's questions about it, and how do we get to an answer here um, after, we all, after we hear it? The key passages on the issue of homosexuality are not very many, um, but they're significant. Um, and so I'm just going to survey them, and just, I'm really just touching on them. So um, afterwards tonight, there's going to be a time for questions and answers. For those who want to stay, we'll kind of move over to the side. But if you want to ask me more details on these things, I'm more than happy um, to respond to, you, to them. Um, and you could turn to him if you want, but I'm really going to move through these pretty quickly tonight. The first, uh, actually, it's not the first. We're going to come back to Genesis later. But the first ones are in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, chapters 18 and chapter 20. You can read both those. It lists a whole bunch of sexual sins, a whole bunch of different things there. Basically, it says if a man lies with a man, it is an abomination. Um, and actually, almost everybody that writes on this, no matter what side of the argument they're on, all agree that it's pretty clearly saying homosexuality is a sin. Um, there's very little disagreement about this particular passage. But it's usually rejected because it's part of the law. Um, I mean, who, who does what's in Leviticus, right? Um, so we can just ignore that um, is usually the argument that's taken with it. Um, so it, it makes it very clear that um, sex between two men um, is an abomination is how it's described. It's listed in there with um, adultery, fornication, with incest, and with a variety of different other sins um, in there as well. Um, the law, you know, the, the law is an interesting thing. The early church wrestled with what do you do with the law, didn't they? Um, as people are coming to Christ and the, the Jews, some people were saying, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Um, and it's not absolutely clear, crystal clear, but, you know, there's, there's the civil law, the national law, which had to do with things that Israel was told to do, and it was only for Israel. And those passages are actually very, very clear that the, Israel is told, because as a nation of Israel, they're to do things civilly as a nation, and they don't apply to us. And they didn't apply to any other nations. They only applied to Israel. There's also the, the ceremonial law. 
um, and those are, are laid out very clearly in, in the law as well. Um, that's the area that the early church was struggling with. So are they supposed to be able to eat meat offered to idols? Um, what about circumcisions? Does everybody come to Christ if they get circumcised? It's part of the ceremonial law. They came to the conclusion, no. Christ took care of that. that. That's what the cross was all about. Be wise towards each other. Let's, let's, let's have sensitivity. At least that's the early church's stand on it. But Christ had came to fulfill that on our behalf. That's what it's all about. But then you've got this, uh, the moral law, the moral code, they would call it, um, which had to do with like the Ten Commandments would fall into there. Um, had to do with more moral things. And Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 both fall into that code. And in general, Israel, as well as the early church, still continued to embrace the moral code um, because it's, it was for all people. As a matter of fact, it even says in this passage that the law to, for a man, not to lie with man, was for all nations. It says it very specifically there. This is, these were um, requirements that God held for all people um, to hold to. And so, um, as mere, and, and most of it, not all of it, but most of that moral law is repeated in the New Testament. So adultery is it was wrong there. We don't cast aside that because it's part of the law, because it's repeated and it's part of the law we're always supposed to hold. Incest is part of the moral law in the uh, Old Testament. We don't cast it aside. It's still a binding regulation of God on our behalf, and it gets mentioned again. So, and homosexuality is repeated in the New Testament as well. So... Um, it kind of goes to um, uphold that these passages actually fit for us today. The next passage is in, in uh, the New Testament. It's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, or those men who practice homosexuality shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says later, Some were such, such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. A parallel passage is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. <clears throat> there he says he speaks of the sexually immoral and the men who practice homosexuality. Um, in the 1 Corinthians passage, there's two different words that are used. Um, one word usually gets translated effeminate. Um, it actually means soft. Um, when uh, it's, uh, where's the passage? It's talking about not wearing soft clothes. You know, you, people that are wearing soft clothes, it's used the same kind of word. The other word is actually a compound word that appears that Paul actually created for himself um, and because it's not used anywhere else. And it actually uses the word for homosexual from the Greek version of the Old Testament and another word, and he brings them together to create a word. Um, it basically means um, it's men who lie with men is, 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 would probably be the most um, literal way to translate the word, men who lie with men. So both these passages basically say somewhat of the same thing. Um, obviously, we know that when it says you'll not inherit the kingdom of God, we're talking about outside of the, outside of the work of Christ in their life. Um, and, but it's, it's basically saying, it's uses the word, some of your books, Bibles might say a sodomite, use the word, because that's where the word originally came from. So I think it's Malachi, something like that. Um, or it gets to uh, translate homosexual, or some of your Bibles will actually say men who lie with men, and it'll also use the word effeminate. Um, so Paul here is saying these are activities that are identified by sin. They're, the activities are not within God's scope of how he wants people to live, as it's linked up with adultery and a number of other things as well. And he uses the bigger term, sexually immoral. Um, 
people who take issue with these passages um, usually go a couple different ways. They'll use the, the word effeminate because it can mean soft. They will link it with morality and say it's being soft on morals. Like, I'm not going to stand for what's right. Um, and we'll bring that into it. And then the other part will be that the, uh, we'll look at the issue of homosexuality and the word used there um, as meaning more in the area of abuse. So um, uh, homosexual prostitution, uh, people being forced into it, or promiscuous homosexual sex, those kinds of things, which they would, and then say that a committed homosexual relationships would not fall into this category. Others would just say that the word is unclear. Um, it's unclear because Paul created it in a, in a way. It's, it's a very rare word, just how it gets used. Um, but it usually gets translated as homosexual. And as I said, other words say it's referring to men abusing other men for economic gain um, and those kinds of things. Um, almost every um, source out there on both sides of the question um, agree that the translation of homosexual is a correct translation. Um, the issue comes with, so what does that really mean? What's, what's Paul, who's Paul really referring to? And the reason it gets redefined by groups that would um, be more supportive of um, gay rights here um, is based on a presupposition that God is not condemning, God never condemns committed homosexual long-term relationships. It's a wholly separate category. And that all the passages are talking about promiscuous or abusive or temple prostitution or um, men with boys, those kinds of things. So it's talking about that. So that presupposition then leads to, it can't mean just straight homosexual. It must be referring to a different group. Um, but they would say, on, on the surface, the word means homosexual. Um, but just give it a different context um, because of the presuppositions, but not because of the way the word is actually translated in this passage. And um, I hope I'm clear about that, but you can ask me about that another time. We'll get to that later. Um, the third area that we get um, comments about it or scripture about it, one of the arguments against um, saying homosexuality is sin is that Jesus never spoke to it. Je Jesus never spoke about it. There's nothing in the New Testament about it, uh, nothing in the Gospels about it, but that's not um, correct. Um, Jesus, on a number of occasions, um, speaks out against what, he, what gets translated in your Bible as sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is porneia, which is where we get the word porn from. Um, when the, uh, in the, that word, so the question is, so what does sexual immorality mean, right? What, what do we mean by that? And when it was used, it meant everything, pretty much, that the moral code of the law used. So when the Jews there would say, don't commit sexual immorality, in that, there was, they could make a list of all the things that were included when they said this. So when someone said that, everybody understood exactly what they were talking about, and there's a whole list of sins. Um, homosexuality was clearly one of those sins that would have been understood. So Jesus doesn't spell it out, but the word itself encompasses all of those things. It's, it's very, very common usage of the word. Not only that, but um, in Mark, Mark 10, I think it's verse 2 and following, there's a couple other places as well. Jesus affirms and uses the created order in order to make some arguments. For instance, when he talks about marriage and, and divorce, he goes back to the created order of male and female and affirms God's um, creation of sexuality and the division of male and female, which we spent uh, quite a bit of time here talking about um, previously. He affirms the created order. He affirms marriage and sexuality as male 
and female. Um, and it's going to tie right into what we look at in Romans chapter 1. And that's where we'll go next. There's a, the last two sections, really, are Romans chapter 1 and then referring back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I'd like to put those two together because I think that they, um, actually, I think you could f- ignore all the scriptures. And I think what we talk about in Genesis makes it pretty clear of what God's design is. Um, and we'll see that here in a minute because it gets highlighted by the things that are here in Romans um, chapter 1 and 2. Um, by the way, let me just, I, I guess I should say something. Um, one of the issues that comes up with the Genesis passage is, is it will be said that God created male and female um, but does not exclude other kinds of relationships. That's what he created there. But the fact that... Um, just the fact that there was not a homosexual relationship there does not mean that God was opposed to that, um, is the idea. So it's kind of like the argument that, because it doesn't say anything about it, it means that there's not a comment about it. Um, and that God was just doing this, but doesn't mean that he wasn't doing other things as well. If you remember our study of the Genesis account, God is very, very clear about creating Adam. Remember one? And then he made Adam two, male and female, and then he told him to be one again. And there was specificity to God's plan here. And the opposition to this argument goes back to back there it was not talking, it was not trying to say anything about committed long-term homosexual relationships. And because it's not mentioned there, God would, you know, what does it say? Man, it's not good that man would be alone, right? Um, so if I'm homosexual, it would be a wronging me to tell me I've got to spend my life alone. And that could not have been God's intent. So therefore, God must have meant that those relationships are valid as well. The, the, the unfortunate side of that is it doesn't tell us that anywhere. Um, but the other side of that is that the trouble happened after the fall. Um, and we're trying to get back to the garden, right? What God meant for us and what God designed for us. So let me just go through this Romans 1 and try to explain how that and Genesis um, come together. I'm not going to read the passage. I think you're familiar with it. It, it goes through about, it says that... Um, Though they knew God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And Paul says they worshiped the, creator, the creature rather than the creator. You guys remember that passage? And then it goes on and it says um, the result of that, it talks about this, this trading off um, of worshiping creation rather than the creator, of exchanging the glory of God for glory of man. Um, then it says the results of it, and it, it has a fairly extensive section on homosexuality. And then it lists uh, quite a number of other sins after that as well. Um, and the question, so people say, see, it's, it's the end result of sin is, is um, homosexuality. The issue is, it's, that's just one example, by the way, of what happens when people sin. Um, and so let me explain why Paul emphasizes that one. Understand the passage in Romans 1 is first and foremost, when he talks about exchanging the truth of God for a lie, it's talking about what is the root of sin. Everything else that gets listed are just examples, and they're actually less important than the heart of the passage, which is, where does sin, what's the root of sin? And there's an exchange that takes place. That's what's what sin is about. Remember, we talked about the fact that we, we exchange good things for, for false things. We, we go for water that doesn't satisfy, and then we exchange it for the living water. We, we get these substitutes, and they don't satisfy. We talked about that. And that is really what Romans 1, the great sin of Romans 1, is exchanging the glory of God, the creator, for a substitute. And that's the heart of that passage. And that's for all of us. We all got to get that. The passage then goes on to give an illustration of what does that look like. 
Paul's wants to say, so when, you, when we do that, what does it look like? And he wants to pick the most vivid illustration of the exchange of creation for creator. And so he goes into this section on homosexual behavior, um, a picture of what it looks like. As I said, some, are, some say it's just talking about temple prostitution here or abusive homosexual behavior. Um, it's not talking about loving, monogamous, committed relationships. But you'll see in the illustration here that whichever think, if, even if you think that's the case, both fall into the same category here. They both end up not showing up, whether it's an abusive or a loving relationship. They both fail to, um, they both illustrate the opposite of what God wanted to do in the garden. I'll try to show you that here. So Romans chapter 1, people reject their creator, it says, and they worship their own creation, right? We all do that. All of us do that. Um, we did it before Christ. We still do it. We, we grab onto things and we make them our, our focus of worship and our center of our life when Christ is supposed to be the center. Um, and so Paul wants to point back to creation to show what was going on. Genesis 1 and 2, as we said, God took one, Adam, he made him into two, which is a word for sex. It's partings. It's uh, to be separate. He makes male and female, it says. And then he tells them what? To be one. And all of us who are married are trying to still figure out what, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to be one? So he takes one, he makes it two, male and female, and then tells male and female then to be one again. Um, and they're supposed to be one in every way possible. Their heart, their soul, their mind, the way they think, their interaction with each other. And it gets demonstrated between, by their sexual union. Um, which he says, be one flesh. One flesh means a big thing. It's way more, but it gets pictured in the sexual relationship between a husband and his wife. Even physically, the joining of intercourse is supposed to be a picture of what oneness is like. It's a, like a, uh, um, an, an illustration for nobody to see but them of what is oneness. How intimate is oneness? That's how intimate it is. Um, and so God puts that in there. Becoming one, they're supposed to be in all ways, is pictured or demonstrated in sexual union between male and female as God created in the garden. As I said, even the physical act of intercourse between a male and female pictures the union of oneness. Jesus and Paul, Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, and Paul expands on it in Ephesians. He then compares what? Marriage, right? Um, to what? God's love for the church, right? And he says it's a mystery. Actually, you know what marriage is really all about? It's all about God and his love for his bride. That's what it's really about. The whole picture and the creation of marriage was designed to show something about God and his character and the way he loves us. Um, and that's this, this part from Ephesians. Ephesians says that this male-female union in marriage points to the creator and gives him glory. It speaks to his nature, his character, and his love for his people, as well as his church, the bride. Even uses the bride and groom imagery there to demonstrate something about God. So what happens in Romans 1? What is it about um, when it talks about homosexual behavior? Um, if the, the union of male and female in marriage in oneness is supposed to speak something about the character and the nature and the glory of God, then what would sin do? What would be the, the vivid picture of what sin does of exchanging? If you exchange that, what's the other? What are you going to get? Um, and that's where Romans 1 gets. What happens in Romans 1 in homosexual behavior is that it counterfeits 
God's original design that was supposed to tell something about him. What does oneness look like? But in fact, it doesn't show the oneness at all. It can't, because a homosexual relationship can't, even in a physical manner, show the same thing that male and female can. It can't show it. It can't show the same picture, because you don't have male becoming two, becoming one again. Two as in male and female becoming one. It can't picture that. So it counterfeits it. Um, it can't show one divided into two sexes called to be the one. Um, just on the side, um, I, I, the questions come up from a few people with me. What about singleness, which is a little bit off the side here? But um, it comes up here because it's like, well, what about singleness? You know, that's, what's, what's with that? It's, it's, um, the scriptures are clear that marriage and, and singleness both glorify God and both are designed to carry out his purposes. The scriptures are abundantly clear about that. Um, and they're ordained by him. But in the garden, we discover that marriage, um, in a unique and singular way, is designed to show something about God and God's relationship with us. Um, it doesn't make it more important or better. It's just a, a vivid picture. In a singular, unique way, it shows something about God and what he's like. So whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, I say, your marriage is supposed to tell the world something about God. It's supposed to say something about his character and his nature and who he is. And so God's designed it in every single way, including physically, to speak to him. And so in Romans 1, what we get is Paul says it gets counterfeited. And homosexuality counterfeits God's design, which is um, what the deceiver has done to us all along. He always counterfeits good things. And so it becomes a counterfeit of what God originally Intended. Let me just read um, a, a short explanation by, um, it's written by John Piper, but he words it better than I do on this particular, this particular subject. He says, the reason Paul focuses on homosexuality in these verses in Romans is because it is the most vivid dramatization in life of the profoundest connection between the disordering of heart worship and the disordering in all of our sexual lives. We learn from Paul in Ephesians 5 that from the beginning, manhood and womanhood existed to represent or dramatize God's relationship to his people and then Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. In this drama, the man, the husband, represents God or Christ and is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The woman, the wife, represents God's people or the church, and the sexual union in the covenant of marriage represents pure, undefiled, intense heart worship. Which is why, by the way, God makes such a big deal about sex outside of that bond, because this is what it's about. That means for the beauty of worship to be dramatized in the right, it needs to be dramatized in the right ordering of our sexual lives. But instead, as Romans 1 says, we have exchanged the glory of God for images especially of ourselves, it says there. The beauty of heart worship has been destroyed, and the disordering of our relationship to him is dramatized in the disordering of our sexual relationships with each other. Since the right ordering of relationship to God in heart worship was dramatized by heterosexual union in the covenant of marriage, a disordering of relationship of God is dramatized in the breakdown of that heterosexual union. Homosexuality, according to Romans 1, then, is a vivid form or a picture, an illustration of the form of that, that form of breakdown. God and man in covenant worship are represented by male and female in covenant sexual union. Therefore, when man turns from God to images of himself, God hands us over to what we have chosen 
and he dramatizes it by male and female turning to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex, um, which dramatizes the exchange of the glory of God for images of ourselves. By the way, we all do that. That's what sin is. We exchange something of God that he's created for us, and we exchange it for something else, a substitute. And so Paul uses homosexuality as a picture of what that exchange looks like because it's a counterfeit of what it was in Romans of Genesis chapters 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So I've, there's probably a thousand questions, um, but you can ask me those um, anytime. Um, on this basis, um, the leadership here at the Vineyard believes that the scriptures are un, unambiguous um, in regards to homosexual behavior in any context. Um, not being compatible with God's design as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. God went to great lengths to make it very clear what his design was. Um, so not compatible with God's design, it violates his commands, and ultimately, like all sin, for any of us, it brings um, no life um, to us. Let me just say a couple things. Um, this would be our whole thing, but I'm not really dealing with um, those who are struggling with this. Um, common struggle with homosexuality, or part, maybe just tempted, but just four things to do if you find yourself in that area. Um, as we said in the beginning of the series, find your identity in Christ. That's where it starts. Um, pursue identity in Christ. Second of all, pursue authentic and life-giving community in the body of Christ, because it is not good for us to be alone. And God has designed ways to bring life from other people to us. Embrace brokenness as an integral part of life, which we'll look at in a moment. And then fourthly, um, have ongoing submission of your sexuality to God. By the way, does that sound like something everybody's supposed to do? Um, we're all supposed to do those things. Um, no matter where we find ourselves, we're all called to pursue our identity in Christ, to pursue life-giving community where we find connections that God designed for us to embrace brokenness as an integral part of our life. We all experience it in various ways and to have ongoing submission of our sexuality um, to God. Okay, next two key words here um, are brokenness and love. Brokenness and love. And we're going to go a little long tonight. I hope you guys are okay with that. Um, these won't go long, but um, I want some time for some worship when we're done here. Two key words are brokenness and love. They are a prerequisite how many had to take a prerequisite for a class at school? We all know what a prerequisite. You don't get in until you take the class and pass it, by the way. Um, um, they're prerequisite. Um, I just sense God saying these are prerequisite for us to, before we do anything with this issue, um, before, we, before we take any steps with this issue, before we, we, we struggle through it and, and talk about it and wrestle with it and, and engage with it and figure out what are we supposed to do with, here we got this truth, the, the, this church anyways, would, would take the position, this is not of God's design. This is part of the, a fallen world. It's not meant to be this way. This is, this is sin. This is not what we're supposed to live. So what do you do with that? And the prerequisite before we do anything with it is brokenness, the two words brokenness and, and love. Without these, I am convinced that we will absolutely fail as a body of Christ to impact our world with the transforming power of the gospel. Without these two things... Um, we, we will, we know this personally, and we know this is by, we will fail as a body of Christ to be part of God's transforming work 
and people out there that desperately need the life-giving gospel. And so we have, to, we have to figure out what these are about. We have to let them sink into our life, which is why I want to give attention to them um, tonight. The first one is brokenness. Jesus said, apart from me, what? can do nothing. We could spend years doing nothing but meditating on what does that mean because we don't get it. Um, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot enter into this. We cannot enter into other people's lives. We don't have, um, I won't have the right things to say. Um, I will not be able to think with the mind of Christ unless Christ does the work in me. And so brokenness starts out with apart from him, I can do absolutely nothing. And we have seen what happens when Christians, um, when we try to engage in ways without the spirit of Christ in us. Um, and it is a disaster. And part of the um, pain of our culture and the, um, the polarization stuff is partly caused by that. And so um, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Um, Throughout this, this whole series, I, you guys could probably tell, I've just been, not, I've, I've been uncomfortable. Not because I've talked about anything that's been difficult. It actually hasn't. Um, and I've been trying to wrestle with wor- what's going on with that. And, um, and I've sensed, especially this week, that the uncomfortableness is that God was calling us as a church to something very significant. Um, and it wasn't necessarily answers to all the problems and the issues. And it wasn't necessarily resolution to everything. But that God has uh, a deep abiding work that he has been little by little calling us to and has been happening amongst us. Um, and um, we are all inadequate to what that is. It's just God's spirit to do work in us. And I think he's calling us um, to that place, calling us to a place of brokenness. And brokenness, all it is, at least in this context, is I am a needy person. That's it. Um, I am in desperate, desperate need. Um, our church, as wonderful as we are, we could be the greatest place in the world as the body of Christ. We are still in desperate need of him all the time. That's what the heart of that word is. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think my own hesitation has been, I think God's calling me to go, Chris, I'm going to make sure you know how desperately you need me. And no, we don't want to go there because it's, it's, it's hard to go there. Um, it's hard to experience the reality of how needy we are at the same time, when you've been in that place, you'll experience the joy of what it feels like to understand how needy we are because there's a Savior right there. And we're in that place that's like this, limb, this our feet in two places of huge, deep need, and gosh, it just aches sometimes. And then there's this, oh, that's where I'm supposed to be. I, actually, that's where life is. That's where the Holy Spirit actually works in us. That's where he actually leads us to to be able to walk into people's lives and engage in, with people that we don't know what to do. And he can bring us into that place of life when we are desperately needy people. Our world is broken by sin, and we see its results all over. We see it in our own life with lust, temptation, there's sickness, um, seeking life and living water elsewhere, um, same-sex temptations, any kind of things in behavior. Um, the great, the, the word is the world needs Jesus. That's it. The world desperately needs Jesus, as desperate as we did. 
And we need to understand, even when we come into Christ and we get saved and redeemed and transformed, my need for Jesus does not diminish at that point. As a matter of fact, I'm, I should be more aware of it. Um, more aware than that very moment in, when I was weeping and asking Christ to come into my life, I should be more aware of it, how much I need him today. Because we know him. And we know ourselves. And we know how great he is. God's message for us today is, um, do we know how desperately needy we are? And if we're going to enter, engage in this, the issues with homosexuality and, and with people and make a difference in life, it's got to begin by us, at least in, in part, getting in touch with how desperately needy we all are. And the question is, do we each know how needy we are? Do we really know? Um, and my answer is I don't. Um, I give glimpses of it here and there. And the, the prayer should be, God, just sh- um, if you have to just kind of wreck us as a church to get us to understand just how desperately needy you are, what a good place to be as a people of God in that place because then he has us fully. And then he's going to make a difference in our lives. He's going to make a difference in our struggles and our temptations, whatever they may be. And he's going to make a difference in our engagement in the world. So brokenness, brokenness. It's crucial, and the reason it's so crucial on this particular issue, brokenness leads, neediness leads to worshiping, but brokenness and neediness produces compassion. Brokenness and neediness produces compassion. If you go through the Gospels, what did Jesus see? When he looked out and he saw the masses, what did he say? He says he looked out and he was moved by compassion. And then he began to have insight, and then he spoke to them and all those kinds of things, and he served them. But the first thing was compassion, which means he, his heart broke over their need. And, and that they're, so the question is, do, does our heart break over the needs of others? When, when I read another story about, I read an editorial that somebody that promotes a, a homosexual idea that I disagree with, and I look at it, and they've got it all wrong. What's my response to that? I get angry. We're frustrated, or I don't. I'm tired of reading about this, or I'm tired of it being the every issue of Sports Illustrated. My son's reading is another article about it. Do, is that my response? Um, on my way over here, I got to Wilmont and Golf Links, and there was a, a young gay couple, two two guys walking across the street holding hands. What's my response when I see that? Um, growing up at my age and, and what I experienced and saw, what's my response? Is it compassion? Which means does my heart break? Does my heart break, or does something else go on? And the scriptures call us as a church for our hearts to break. And then when our hearts are broken and are compassionate, God moves us into service and engagement in ways that please him. But we have to be needy, because needy produces compassion. And then compassion is the avenue which the Holy Spirit uses to make a difference. And if we are not there yet, that's our first thing. That's the prerequisite. Do our hearts break in the ways that Christ's heart broke for the world and for us as well. And my answer to that is, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. My heart does not break like that enough. Um, and God wants us to have that kind of response. Um, and we see the world to see the way Jesus does. Compassion opens the door to everything else. Relationship, engagement, even speaking out the truth, all those kinds of things. But it begins with compassion. And compassion comes from brokenness, and all brokenness is, do I know how desperately I need him? Second, the last other word here is love. Scriptures say, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for love. Christ died for us. What is the standard of what love looks like? Christ 
dying for us on the cross. We need to understand how needy we are. Guess what else we need to know? What does it look like to sacrificially love people? Both within our own church, that ought to be easy, right? Um, and then those outside the church, particularly those that we may get very frustrated with or have great difficulty with. We're to love with the love that Christ had, his standard of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love flows out of compassion. When I understand how needy I am, and it produces compassion where my heart breaks for people because they're drinking water that gives no life, then I'm ready to lay down myself for that person. If I'm really there in my heart, I want to lay down my life for them and make a difference. That's what love is. And that's where God wants to get us. Sacrificial love flows out of compassion. When our hearts break, we desire to be instruments of God's life-giving love. And then lastly, sacrificial is love, is guided by loving God with all our hearts. Um, some people say, well, you, you, every, we should just love. Well, we should. I love our neighbor. What comes before loving neighbor? Love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind and your strength. When we do that, then it guides and shapes our sacrificial love for each other. Um, it's, and it gives us guidance as we go to that place. So the question is very simple. Um, and it's, it, it could fuel a million conversations, particularly on this whole issue of homosexuality. What does sacrificial love look like in my world? I go out in this place, and a lot of you work with all different people, and we're in contact with all sorts of people. What does sacrificial love look like in those places? What is it going to look like? It begins with great need, which leads to compassion, which leads to sacrificial love. Um, and God wants us to get there and be engaged with that before we do anything else. So what does he want for us at the vineyard, first and foremost, as one body for us to begin to join in our common brokenness with each other, our common neediness? In the morning, the first thing, when you get out of bed and your feet touch the floor, the very first thing on our lips should be, Jesus, I desperately need you. And I would just encourage you to burn those words so deep in your mind. That is, before you've even thought of anything, it actually jumps into your mind. Jesus, I need you. As soon as your feet touch the floor, and when you get in bed and your feet finally come off, um, that should be the first, the last thing before you go to bed. Jesus, I desperately need you. Show me how much I need you. And then the second thing as a church body to come together before we engage even, to love the Lord with our heart and soul and mind, but to learn to say, what is sacrificial love going to look like? Um, and unfortunately, the greater church in many ways um, has not demonstrated that very well. I think it's because we don't know compassion. We haven't entered in those places of compassion yet. Uh, Alan, you can come up with the worship team. A um, few things to do as far as during our worship time. Um, on the table uh, back here by John, there's some cards. If, if as part of your worship you want to just write down a, a prayer request, you can put it in the basket. That's an easy way to have others participate in praying. If you, if you see one in the basket, you can take it, pray for them. Um, while we're singing... Um, Christy, I'm going to have you in the back, kind of on the steps by the back curtain there. Christy's going to be back there, and Mike's going to be back by the sound booth here. I'm, I think I'm going to sit up front here. Um, if you want someone to pray with, um, they, um, they would love to pray with you. Um, whether it's on this issue, or a friend, or a family, or your own self, whether it's something that's come up in our series, um, based upon what we just looked at tonight, how many of us are needy? We're all needy. So we can all come, say, come to somebody and say, will you bring me before the Lord? Because I'm, I'm needier. I don't realize that I, need you to, I just need to be prayed for. Um, we all need it. So there's, um, we don't have to have some special thing. But if there is something or something that's been stirring in your heart even over the last weeks, um, 
Christy or Mike or myself, we would um, be delighted to pray to pray with you. You can do that. You can um, you can pray together. If you're with somebody near you and you just want to pray for each other, um, ask God to put sacrificial love into your heart. Ask him to, to show you your neediness. Um, you can pray those things together. You can sing. You can kneel. Um, the communion table behind me here is available, and you can um, participate in that too. So, as we go to sing here, for those struggling in the areas of sexuality, um, could be lust, pornography, homosexuality, purity in your relationships, um, your sense of aloneness, um, where do we go? It's very simple. Um, we go to the God um, and we ask him to do his work in us. For those who have been hurt or abused or injured, and many of us know that, and ex- those experiences, where do we go? We go to God who is always good. And we say, God, do something in my life. Do a work in my life in the midst of this. For those who have family that are caught in pursuits that don't give life, where do you go? We go to a God who is good. We ask him to do his work in us. For those who are wearied or even angry or frustrated about the changes in our culture and its unmistakable impact, um, where do we go first? We go to a God who is good and who is in control, and we ask him to do a work first in me. And for those who want to be ministers of life to their coworkers or their friends who have chosen paths contrary to God's design, and as you try to discern how to live redemptive lives, compassion without compromise, where do you go? You go to a God who is good and say, Lord, do a work first here. Show me how needy I am and, and call me to sacrificial love and show me what um, that looks like. Lord, I would just, uh, as we uh, sing and take some time before you, we would just acknowledge that we are, um, as a, a song goes, that we are all poor and we are powerless. In you we have all things. Um, we would dare ask that you would show us how needy we are. Um, and in that sometimes difficult place of brokenness, may we enjoy the sweetness of your power in our life. And give us wisdom to sacrificially love the way the elements behind the Lord showed your love for us. May you be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen.